0: Hey, it's Brian from There's No Business Like, and I'm stoked to be heading to Indianapolis for the Midwest Arts Expo. I'm really looking forward to the PD sessions and the networking, and of course, seeing all of our friends and colleagues in person, but I'm most looking forward to the hang. I've never done that before, so hopefully I can stay up late enough. Usually I go to bed by eight. And something new for us is we're gonna have a booth. We're gonna be on the expo floor as exhibitors at booth 251-251. So if you're on the expo floor, please come by, say hi to us. We're gonna be doing some recording and have some fun games and just getting to know people. We're also gonna be recording live and have some great giveaways. So stop on by, 2.51. And I'm looking forward to seeing all of you at the Midwest Arts Expo.
1: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
2: Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Josh Benson in Marion, Illinois. I'm here with my friends, Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City
0: Arts. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents. Danielle. It's
1: Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean,
0: Virginia.
3: And Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan.
2: I've got a question for you all today to start out. What is something that you used to do that you loved and you were passionate about that you either stopped doing and then started again later in life or that you don't do any longer and why?
1: As a, I guess a kid into middle school, high school, I was a swimmer. I wasn't good at it, but at the, I guess at the time I didn't really realize that I was maybe an amazing swimmer. And just like, once I got into high school, like theater kind of took over. And I think I did start to realize that they were people that were like actually very excellent and could compete. And I was not one of them, you know, just kind of stop swim recreationally or whatever. And I guess in 2018, I joined an adult swim club um, here in uh, where I lived in Reston, Virginia. And I was on the, it was the Reston Masters swim team for probably close to a year. And it was fun to get back into it. It was humbling Uh, beyond measure. (laughs) Um, But it was really fun. And it's something that I've tried over time to like work back into my life.
4: When I was, I guess, middle school, high school area, I basically lived in the theater, I think like a lot of people and I, I loved it like a lot. And then I went off to college and I got a big kid job and really did very little acting. And then got away from it. And then recently, this past year, I got back on stage and have been really enjoying it. I don't know that I will ever do it as much as I used to, or that I will be able to do it as much as I would like to. Um, But it's been a nice outlet to get back into.
3: I'm very similar to Kevin. I started out as a performer as well um, on stage. And then once I got moved kind of off stage to backstage and production work in college, I did not perform on stage for almost 10 years. I was not back on stage in any significant way until I went to Interlochen, was up in Traverse City and got back on stage with the Old Town Playhouse, was in a couple shows, directed some, stage managed some, you know, really got back into that creative practice. And then I once again moved into another phase of life that just simply doesn't allow for me to participate in community theater or any sort of like theatrical anything, having a kid, having a full time job, all of those things. So it's something that I miss desperately and would really love to get back into. But I just don't know that it's actually in the cards for me ever again, which makes me really sad. Um, But hopefully one day.
0: I used to really enjoy writing, performing, and recording music, and I just don't have the time to do that anymore. And I I also enjoyed creating that with partners and friends, uh, musicians, fellow musicians, and uh, just we're all just too busy to get together, unfortunately. And so that's something I, I really do miss. I do play my guitar and fiddle around a bit and write a little bit on my own, but I really miss that partnership of it.
2: In the little bit of time that I didn't think there was a future in performing arts for me, I got into building race cars. And I really loved that. I also was really passionate about hunting at one point, and I've completely gotten away from all of that.
0: What do you hunt in southern Illinois?
2: Deer, turkey, geese, ducks, pheasant, quail, doves, coyotes. I mean, there's a lot more. And so once my daughter was born, I I was still doing some waterfowl hunting. I was hunting uh, ducks and geese. And then once she was born, the the time that I was putting towards that just didn't, didn't make sense for me anymore. And so I, I walked away from that. I've, of course, found a new passion in painting and in physical art forms outside of the Civic Center here. And and so that's something that I've kind of dove into as a new passion. Our guest today is Ron Stefano of Epic Arts Management. He talks a little bit in depth and gets a little bit vulnerable about what his real passion is and, and how it's not quite being fulfilled right now. And that's just a small part of this interview. Enjoy this chat with Ron DiStefano.
5: Hi, I'm Ron Stefano. I'm the Producing Director of Epic Arts Management and our production company, Extraordinary Performers in Concert.
2: Ron, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to kind of dive into your backstory. Um, and I can't move forward without introducing our fabulous co-host, Danielle Van Hook, who's here with us.
1: Oh, hey, I am really looking forward to getting to know you over this next, I don't know, 45 to 50 minutes.
5: I'll do my best to be incredibly entertaining and informative. So Ron,
2: how did you originally get started in the arts to begin with? Where did do you remember where your first like point of interest was to get into the arts? 5 years old,
5: old King Cole kindergarten graduation. That's going back. No, Tell that was my. That. Yes. That was that. my that was my first taste of performing in front of other humans, hearing the applause and being cognizant of I could get used to more of that. So that began an attention-seeking journey that has had many twists and turns over the years and brought me many places I never thought I would go. A big fork in the road was when I decided to get a degree in chemistry in college, because I come from a family of scientists and mathematicians for whom arts was not a viable career choice. I convinced them of that later. But I was going to Florida State University in chemistry, had to do the orientation. And somebody said to me, you know, they happen to have one of the best music programs in the country. You've sung and played piano your whole life. Why don't you just audition to see what happens? I auditioned and they said, if you get a music degree, we'll pay for both degrees so that was a major fork of like let's take art a little more seriously and that began a series of cascading effects that led me
2: most mostly to where i am now so how is your career in chemistry gone?
5: you know my claim to fame and what's going to be on my tombstone is that i tutored ariana grande in algebra 2 stop it so that's what my chemistry degree got me and and that's enough that is enough Well done. Thank you. It's going to be on my tombstone. The rest of this is really inconsequential. And whenever I happen to be performing and do student outreaches, I lead with that. And all of a sudden, I'm the coolest person in the room.
2: 100%. That's amazing. Yeah. And Uh, no
1: one even heard you say algebra.
5: I lost you at Ariana.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Once you made that decision, you auditioned. I assume you got into the program. I did. I did. And, And how did it go from there?
5: It was a fun thing I was doing on the side to pay for my intended de- college uh, degree in chemistry and intended career in chemistry. It, I wasn't taking seriously really at all. It was just, I just took all these extra classes because they were paying me to. I had a great voice teacher. I was learning all the things I needed to learn. I started auditioning for the musicals because Florida State had open auditions. And so I was competing directly with the people who were you know in the musical theater program and succeeding to some people's dismay. (laughs) They're like, why are you even here? You're not even doing this. What are you doing taking our parts away?
1: He doesn't even go here.
5: He doesn't even go here. And then the next turning point actually occurred after I graduated college. I was accepted to the PhD program in chemistry at Rutgers University. And I said, okay, this whole arty farty thing has been fun let's do one last hurrah, let's attend a theater conference, let's get a cute summer job, and we'll say goodbye to all of this. The summer job I got was a little summer stock theater in upstate New York, which was a very exciting for a Floridian. I had a little theater called the Mac Hayden Theater. And there, I happened to cross paths with a young lady named Melissa Giatino, who provided the next fork in the road. She, at that point, had already been a Radio City Rockette Two years in a row, had done major international touring. And she pulled me aside after she saw me perform on stage. We were alternating shows, kind of. And she said, I've seen a lot of people perform. Whatever it is, I think you've got it. And I can't wait for you to move to New York City and start performing. And I went, Oh, (laughs) this is just fun. I'm going to New Jersey. I'm going to be a chemist. And she said, Over my dead body. So, I moved to New York City. I deferred my acceptance to the PhD program in chemistry and thus began a full-time career in the arts. So even
1: if only part of that was true?
5: (laughs) It's all true. It's It's the best story I've heard all day. It's too crazy to make up. (laughs) It's just—it's too crazy to make up. The journeys are too crazy. It's just too crazy. And she's still my business partner today. So she's 50% of everything I do.
2: And I've... I've known Melissa as long as I've known you, and yep. I
5: had no idea that she was a rockette. She was a rockette. She she also performed in Hal Prince's Company of Showboat in London for close to a year, I think. She was the associate dance captain for 42nd Street on Broadway for six years. She's a playa. She's, a she's yeah. the real deal. Yeah. So you moved to New York City. I moved to New York City and literally hit the ground running, did not even unpack my luggage, threw my luggage into the crappy excuse my language, sublet that I found that was the size of a bed, like the bed in the room was what I was paying for. I put the stuff in the room and I turned to the other people in this apartment who I hardly knew and said, there's an audition happening today at two. I think I can get to Lincoln Center Library and photocopy some music. How do I get there? What do I do? And I was at an audition before I even unpacked my luggage. So I I hit it hard. Within three months, I had landed My first kind of big opportunity, which was the international tour of the musical Evita, which I had never been out of the country. And I got my passport. I flew to Germany and started rehearsals for this crazy, wonderful show. And when that rolled around a year, I had to call Rutgers from Munich, Germany and say, I don't think I'm coming. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and then I became a full-time musical theater performer, which lasted from 1996 all the way through 2010, when another shift started to
2: happen. Uh, what shows did you work on in that period of time?
5: So many. A lot of shows that involved a modicum of dancing, the Anything Goes, the the uh, 42nd Streets, the classics. And then I started to do some contemporary musicals which which had hopes of coming into New York City, but didn't. There's so many amazing creations, new musicals that die of warning in the regions, you know, where you just, you do it and you're like, this is it. This is, I'm going to come to New York in this show and this is going to be Tony Award material. And then it just dies, like the financing falls out or they feel like it's not the right moment. One particular show I did, this was pre Will and Grace, But it was the same topics that Will and Grace covered in musical form. And it was so cutting edge in 2000. And I was like, this is it. I've got like the Jack McFarland role in this new musical. This is going to be it. And the author decided it it hit a little too close to home. The material was a little too personal and decided not to move it to New York City. And so that mm-hmm. never happened. And there's so many things like could clock, so many workshops, so many re- opportunities that I did. One of the big highlights for me was the, the Broadway tour of Fiddler on the Roof, opposite... Theodore Bikel, who was the original Captain von Trapp in *Sound of Music*, so amazing to have that much legacy on stage and to be doing scenes with someone who was like nominated for an Oscar and you know I'm like a living masterclass. A living masterclass every night. Like I'm eating a dinner at a bar after the show with this man who like has worked with every human being under the sun. One of the old, he was in in the in the *My Fair Lady* movie. He was Zoltan Karpathy. Like he's he's got all this history that no one really knew who he was unless you were, you know, like a fan of Jewish folk music or whatever, but but really, really incredible. So those were some highlights, lots of fun stuff in there. Lincoln Center, I got to do Babes in Toyland at Lincoln Center, which was fun. So you mentioned that there
2: was a, a big shift in 2010.
5: At that point, I had deemed myself crown prince of the small regional theater. I had performed at every theater under 800 seats in in the country that I had wanted to work at. I had done nice featured roles or principal roles. And so I said, I am sit in New York until I get my big Broadway show. And it didn't happen because Broadway is an interesting beast in that it's commercial theater, it's right place, right time. It, talent fe- factors somewhere in there, but everyone who's auditioning is talent. There are so many other factors that come into getting an actual Broadway show in New York City. So it didn't happen. And I was having to go back to a word processing job to pay the bills. I was like, I've worked solid, like literally 11 months a year in the theater since 1996. And now by my own volition, I'm not working anymore because I've put like limits on where I think my career should be. I'm wildly unhappy. So Melissa at that point had also come to a crossroads. She had moved to Los Angeles. She had stopped performing. And so we both had this idea to put like a... An act together, like let's let's do something outside the box. Let's let's do like a Fred and Ginger show. Let's do a long form song and dance show. No one's doing this. Let's let's pull this together. And we spent a year. She had to bring my tap skills from three to nine <laughs> to pull this off. So I went to boot camp at her house. She taught me really had a tap dance. And we launched it. And we unknowingly filled a niche that the National Performing Arts Center didn't even know they had, and that we all of a sudden were accessible, easy to program, cheap dance, which doesn't exist in the marketplace. Did you know that you were filling that niche? Did you know that there was a void there? We didn't even know the Performing Arts Center model existed We were designing this to go on Holland America Cruise Line because I had dabbled in cruise work and I thought, oh, this is perfect. The audience base is 65 to 85. We're singing their music, we're tapping come to find out as soon as we created it the book Red Hall in America said we do this music on our ships in the production shows we're not hiring your dumb show so that was a total bust so then through a wonderful performer named Jerry Sager who I had worked with in Fiddler on the Roof as a performer we were introduced to Mojo one of the showcase room producers in the performing arts center world he said I'd love to have your cute little song and dance act in my showcase room at the Next Arts Midwest thus it all began
1: so what year did that?
5: so our real showcase day I say is September of, I want to say it's 2011 in Minneapolis or 2012, somewhere in there, somewhere in there. Or maybe Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids, somewhere
1: Were you being represented by anybody at that point?
5: Self-represented because very specifically, I told Melissa, my musical theater career has been mishandled by 10 different agents. Nobody does it like me. Every job I got was because I went to the course call on my own. I connected with that producer or director. And then I handed someone else commission and it made me so angry. So I told Melissa, we're not getting representation unless we absolutely have to. So we self-represented from 2010 when we started until 2015. Somewhere in there, we started employing my mother to make phone calls, which she did and book, got us booked all over the country. My mother was negotiating our deals. I mean, she was one of those first momagers along with pre-Kardashian, a pre-Kardashian momager. Um, now because she's mom does she get a higher commission we did pay her a commission it was actually a little lower i think i, I can't remember <laughs> i'd have to look so far back but we paid her a percent she remembers was, she, she didn't <laughs> want the money she she was i mean my mother's the best um she still works for us now she's like executive assistant part-time she helps out with some stuff but that was that was a that was accidental Two on tap the name of that show its success was accidental we didn't don't know, know about that well, we didn't
2: know what we had, you didn't know what you had, but clearly there was so much work and experience that went into this a lot of love,
5: not a and, lot of wisdom, a passion. a passion, tons of passion. Well, yeah, I mean, you knew
1: heart. the art, but you didn't know the market,
5: not at all. So much so that I remember standing in our booth and the first presenter coming up after our showcase and being like, How much is it? and I was like, I don't know how to answer this question. What's an appropriate price, 500, 1000? 3000 10000 Like, I could have picked any number out of my butt. Thank goodness those early presenters, I think, smelled our greenness. If you can smell greenness. And we're okay with us asking questions like, what price would you think is appropriate for your market? And how many tickets do you think you can sell at what price? And would you be okay with a 50-50 of whatever that would be in terms of a guarantee? So the people were very kind to us at at the beginning. And I think that was just us leading with our heart. At all points during this journey, Melissa and I have always been the most ethical, the most transparent, like we were never afraid to say, we don't really know what we're doing, but we know we're talented and we know your audience is going to love the show. You're going to have to help us with the rest. That people, I think, recognize us, recognize that in us, that we were not trying to pull one over on them or trying to be too uh, aggressive and they responded to it.
1: So is that the beginning of the company that you're running today?
5: It was the roots of the company we're beginning today. So that was 2010 to 2015. In 2015, we're still actively doing two on tap. But Melissa says, I think I might want to start a family, not with me, with other people. I don't think, and now, and she also has an extensive history dancing that predated me by 20 years. So for me, tap dancing was this new and exciting thing I was doing. She was like, these dogs are tired. At some point, I'm going to have to get off this stage. So she said, Ron, let's rack our brains and, create something that you can be in that I don't have to be in. took us nine to 12 months to come up with that idea, but Shades of Buble, a three-man tribute to Michael Buble, came out of that impetus to create a project that I could be a part of that she didn't have to. So then I guess at that point, we became a production house. We created uh, Shades of Buble in 2015, and at that moment, we said it's going to look really stupid if we go to market saying Two on Tap is selling a show called Shades of Buble, So we're like, let's come up with a fun name to represent an umbrella organization that does this. And that's when we created Epic Arts Management. Epic standing for Extraordinary Performers in Concert. How many times have you said that? Enough, but not enough that people know it. I mean, it's sort of like a little secret. People will go, why do you capitalize Epic every time you write it? I'm like, it's an acronym. They're like, oh. (laughs)
1: Clever.
2: You originally produced your own show. With our own cash. Mm Mm-hmm. And then whenever you got to the point to where you were going to create Epic and create Shades of Buble and take it to market, what was different this time? How did you go about it differently knowing the market now?
5: We had five years of knowledge of what audiences enjoyed and wanted. Over that time span, when Two on Tap started in 2010, um, the Queen Mary 2 actually was one of our first clients. And thank goodness they only gave us 15 minute slots. Because if we had done a 45 minute show, not even a 90, if we had done a 45 minute show for those people on that ship, they would have booed us off the stage. We didn't understand structure of a show. We didn't understand that clever only should be used as a spice in a mainstream show there were so many things as a producer that we learned over the course of five years in 2015 two on tap was a well-oiled machine we had that audience at every point in that 90-minute show, we knew how they were going to respond, how, how long they would tolerate me telling jokes and telling a story. When we needed to move on, we're ready for a ballad, we're ready for another up-tempo. This is our fake finale, this is our encore, we had it down to a science. All of that was the starting point for Shades of Bublé. Now, we still made mistakes. The show was a little um, kitschy it had a script-ish at the beginning. We knew for legal reasons the show couldn't have a script because then we're talking grand rights versus BMI ASCAP rights. It needed to stay a concert. But, you know, we were giving the guys like lame jokes to tell, which was completely counterproductive to the smooth fun vibe (laughs) that Michael Buble was giving. So we had in 2015 sort of fighting with ourselves as to what the show was. But again, the five years of knowledge before that helped us make those changes very swiftly. Those bad jokes only got told once. We didn't sit on them for a year. We knew what arrangements were working. We knew order. What we did differently was used everything we had learned up to that point to create the show. And then in 2018, when we're like, oh, let's we've got this going, there's enough money in the bank, let's produce the next thing we decided to to create Shades of Uble, but with pop music. So that's when NYC three was born. That is basically a boy band doing music of 2000s to today, and we used all the things that we learned during 2015 to 2018 with the Shades of Buble journey to create a new starting point for that show. So again, more choreography, slicker, better production, less dialogue. We had gotten some feedback that Shades of Buble got a little talky. So from the get-go, NYC3 had less dialogue. So that was sort of our production house journey. And when we created NYC3, that was the moment that we started saying yes to all of the friends over the years that had asked us to represent their acts, where we said, no, we don't do that. We're self-represented artists and we produce our own stuff. We're not agents. In 2018, we said, why have we been saying no to everybody for 10 years? Let's just say, sure, we'll sell our stuff and your stuff. And then the agency was truly born in 2018.
1: So how many acts are you up to now?
5: We're signing some contracts this week. It'll be somewhere between 23 and 25 over the next couple of weeks. Yeah.
1: Now, when you created
2: Shades of Buble, you did that so that you could keep touring and performing. Mm -hmm. Where are you
5: at as far as a performer within the company now? Performing not as much as I'd like. So that, if you ask me what my current struggle is, it's that we've now expanded our agency. So we now have multiple full-time employees and multiple part-time employees. Originally, we were bringing on these employees so that I could start taking steps backwards to fall more in love with performing. But what instead has happened is each of these individuals has generated work commensurate (laughs) with their position. So now we have four times as much work and four times as people. So it, it hasn't quite worked out to where I have created the space to really start performing again. And I'm actually performing less and less every year which does not make me happy. Over the next kind of, I'd say, two years, the goal is to either hire more people and maintain the workload so I can begin a small retreat. I'll always be involved, but maybe not 40 hours a week involved or change the roster in some way. reduce the workload, some combination of all those things so that I can get creativity back into my
2: life. You struggle with not fulfilling that passion in your life right now. Correct. With the balance of business work to the work that's actually fulfilling and fueling your passion.
5: I'd say being an agent manager is fueling. I mean, who doesn't love creating work opportunities for their friends? Seeing people who couldn't literally pay their rent now buying a home because of the pathways that you've helped. I mean, that's so rewarding. And it pats me on, I mean, it feels very good for presenters who wouldn't give me the time of, day now, 10 years later, like coming up to me and saying, Oh my gosh, I love all your acts. Let's do business acts that you know, would never have talked with 2,500 seat, 3,000 seat venues. Did I say accident venues? Venues that would, would normally not be interested in anything we have to offer, but now we have acts that are attractive to them. we just signed a wonderful group called Uptown, which is, you know, really taking the PAC market by storm because no one's ever really done what they've done. I get a pat on the back. I get a stroke from, from that feeling of being more of a member of the industry. You know, everybody wants to be loved, accepted, and approved, and that's check some of those boxes. So I'm not saying that it's not my passion to be an agent, but there's just a passion that's one step above that passion that has really had its light snuffed a little bit. I'd love to find a way to continue to do all of it.
1: Are you feeling like you want to like continue producing things for yourself or doing more like auditioning and getting back into that kind of scripted? It's a good question.
5: And what I realized I missed is being in a company of performers. Melissa and I had a brilliant time. We traveled to 40 plus countries with two on tap. She's wow. my best friend. We have seen literally the world together. It's just two people. I thrive on social interaction, making new friends, getting to know people. I, thrive. I want to be back in a 40 person company doing a show like that. So that's what I want to get back into is traditional musical theater. I might you know, talk to you next year and have major regrets because I also know that being a performer in a musical is you are the smallest pawn on that chessboard. And I have been somewhere (laughs) on the back line of the chessboard for quite a while. And I don't know how good I am at taking direction anymore. I don't know how good I am at listening to an idea I think is horrible and doing it anyway with a smile because that director is getting paid more than I am. We'll see. It's a big experiment. But uh, that's the goal currently is to actually audition for a musical and do it.
2: One of the through lines through... Everything here has been showcasing of these new shows, and that's led to success and development. Can you talk to us about the response and what your experience was at that first Arts Midwest uh, in Mojo's room? We know how horrible your first APAP experience <laughs> right. was. Just out talk of about that. What it was, <laughs> but. But for your first experience at Arts Midwest, what was your showcase experience
5: like that there? And and what did that then drive forward for you? From the very beginning, we knew we had a challenge because we were doing something that wasn't easily describable to people who hadn't seen it. We weren't a traditional music act. We weren't a traditional dance act. We weren't a traditional variety act. We were a combination of all three of those things. We basically it was stand-up comedy meets tap dancing meets gorgeous duet singing of the Great American Songbook. So we knew from the very beginning we would have, in a 12 to 15-minute showcase, we were going to have to design something that brought people on a journey. We weren't going to be able to just do three three-minute songs and go, you know, we, we nailed it. They got it. We decided to instead do like nine 30-second clips of our music showing them, oh, they do ballads. Oh, they do high energy tap dancing. Oh, they do instrumental music. All the things that we did, we knew we had to construct a showcase that was a little bit farther outside the box. That did the job. That was instrumental in introducing producers to what we did. So that idea of like creative showcasing became a hallmark of what we offer our artists as agents in that we always say that like the fact that Melissa and I started as performers infuses the entire ethos of everything our agency is. So part of the services we offer is let's have multiple three-hour calls designing your showcase to make it stand out. There are other Four Seasons groups performing at you know, how is yours going to be different? How is your showcase going to be different? How do you, in a 12 to 15 minute brushstroke, show them how special you are and why they should purchase your show over others. So all of that started right then when we realized we were something different, had to showcase differently, do it differently. Somewhere in that journey, we realized that showcase producers were doing it to make money, whether that's was to pay their conference fees, pay so that their rostered artists wouldn't have to pay or whatever. So we realized there was a significant markup. So somewhere in that 2017-18 region, we decided to start producing our own showcase room. That was one of the hardest things we've ever done in our lives. You're basically designing a festival with acts changing over every 15 minutes, complicated tech click track, multiple instruments, multiple singers, wireless frequencies that are competing with everybody else in the hotel, lighting, technicians. And you're also getting up every 15 minutes as a host, keeping the energy of the room exciting and keeping people you know, happy and trying to get presenters in the room. It was so hard. I think we needed to do it to understand what our artists needed. We stopped doing that. This year is going to be one of the first years where we 100% are going back to the model of partnering with professional showcase producers to have our artists perform in their rooms at a higher level than we could do ourselves. So we're aiming for the big rooms, the 2000 plus square foot rooms, the ones with the LED wall, the ones with the back line in the room, the ones with the grand piano. Our artists deserve more than the cutesy patootsy 800 square foot room. Now, Um, It served us, you know, but we were also known as the value conscious agency. Come to us if you have a performing arts center between 300 and 700 seats because every act on our roster can perform at a price that works for you. That's great. But moving to the next level, now we have acts that want $15,000, $20,000, $25,000 for a show. So they need to be showcased in a way that looks like a $20,000, $25,000 performance. Things are changing. Things are growing. The showcase model itself is changing. Our live showcases as viable as they used to be with the internet. Now we have HD video available at our fingertips. I work with presenters every day who have no interest in attending a live conference, will never attend a live conference, and book four to six shows a year, on videos alone, and their audiences are very satisfied. What's the future hold? I don't know. But I know that there is still, right now, in this exact moment, in 2023-24, live showcasing is fresh. It's it's a great way to introduce presenters to especially a new act, and we're going to keep doing it, even though it's wildly over-expensive. I mean, the money that we spend is bonkers.
2: Bonkers. With creating a dynamic showcase, how do you get people into the room to begin with? Do you have any tips for like how to create the description for your showcase and the title yeah. for your showcase that would then lend itself to getting people in the room to begin
5: with? I can't say that we're particularly brilliant at that. That's probably where we as an agency need to work harder. The copy, the blurb in the description, oh, we're great at that. I will write you the splashiest, most inviting thing. But there are agents who have been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years more than they have. There's just their presence, them standing outside a room indicates to everyone walking by that something interesting is happening behind them. We may be on the verge of touching that kind of recognizability. We have not arrived at that moment by any stretch. So I think we as an agency have a ton more growth potential in terms of driving presenters to discover acts of hours that they don't know yet based on my reputation not the artist blurb or the artist reputation but you see me outside a room and you know what's behind me is going to be good we got a lot of work to do in that
2: department how do you float that balance between carnival burker and <laughs> presence outside of a room like
5: There is no difference. (laughs) Have you seen some of the showcase producers? Um, You know, I I also think that people do it in a way that doesn't appeal to me. We have never been the hard sell agency. I would never want a presenter to to purchase one of our artists for a show that wasn't right for them. And I know that as a different model than at least half of the people on the floor do. Half the people on the floor want to make that sale. And if the show's bad, it doesn't matter. The check clears either way. For me, it's about longevity. It's about relationships. And it's the epic brand. People... Now I've come to say, oh, if Ron and Melissa brought this artist onto their exclusive roster, it must be as good as those other ones that we've had. So Carnival Barker has never been our style. I'm not going to be the one walking up and down going, come into the room and see the most amazing thing you've ever. That's not me. I think there's an element of, hey, friend, presenter, hey, Josh, who I've known for a decade. I know your venue. I've already got a sense that you'd really love Portrait of Aretha because we've talked a little bit about it. She's showcasing tomorrow night. You better be there and you better bring a few friends because, you know, all of Illinois and Indiana are going to want it too as soon as you see her. So don't come by yourself. Bring a little block booking contingent with you. Like that's something I can say now, having been in this world since 2010, that I couldn't say before.
2: That adds a legitimacy to it. That adds... A personal connection to it and that adds authenticity
5: yeah it's real we're not faking it and they wouldn't be on the roster if we didn't love them
2: and that's one of the things that danielle and i were talking about earlier today was right now we've got this time we're coming out of the pandemic there are tons and tons of new colleagues on both sides and we have this opportunity right now to kind of shape the industry moving forward and to shape it in an authentic way with transparency with equity, and in ways that actually move the industry forward in wonderful ways?
5: That, to me, answers the question, what's the future of all this and what do you see changing? I mean, to be very frank and transparent, because it's the only way I know how to be, when the George Floyd murder occurred, I looked at our roster and I went, oh my gosh, there's nobody of color on this entire page. I am doing a disservice to the industry because it might take me a little work, but I can go out there and lift up some amazingly talented artists who deserve the exposure, but that I just haven't come across because it wasn't as easy. I My circle is mostly tap dancers and musical theater people and I wasn't crossing paths. So Melissa and I basically made an active choice Let's make some new paths. Let's go discover a new artist." And thus came CeCe Tennille doing this Aretha Franklin show, which is one of the best shows we've ever represented. An amazing Motown show out of Orlando called *The Sounds of Soul*, a great Sam Cooke show. It encouraged us to diversify our rostered cast. Shades of Bublé doesn't have to be three Caucasian males who look like Michael Bublé. It just has to have a vibe. So now we make an effort for every show to include at least one person of color. If we have in *Bachelors of Broadway*, we have a commitment to doing our best. We can't make promises because when you're running a rostered show, sometimes you're just like, "I got three human beings, they're talented, I got to get them on the stage." But we make an active commitment, that there is somebody who is not the person that was there before, that there's a new space for a new person to be in that cast. And we've been active and conscious about it. It's been huge. That's where I hope the industry is going, where we're looking at all of this. And I love that about our industry, that we're not afraid to say that like, I blew it. I was blind until 2000, whatever year that was. I didn't realize that in my omission, I was actually creating inequity. So that's huge. I'm, I'm so happy that our industry is not afraid. Well, actually, I feel like we're one of the first industries to tackle those things head on because we're creative people and we're deeply feeling and emotional people. And we sense those things maybe more quickly than other industries.
2: I feel like it's an incredible step forward. Just, just hearing your story of self, self-actualization of your roster and how you have then decided we have a chance to make a difference here in well, our small way, however we can. We have an obligation to do so, to to create an equitable experience and an equitable roster and equitable opportunity.
5: Right. But I don't, we don't deserve a pat on the back for it because it's actually, it was a mistake. It's recognizing that we really made a mistake. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't deserve any kind of an accolade or, or it's what needed to happen and it should have happened. But, you know, when you're also when you're working twenty seven thousand thousand hours a week and you're doing your best just to stay afloat and keep the finances running and there's a pandemic and you're applying for the SVOG. And I mean, there were so many things happening in that moment. So, you know, we also have to have grace with ourselves and understand that we're human. But but yeah, it it was something that we recognized and it needed to happen for sure.
2: What advice would you have for anyone That's managing a roster, managing an agency, as far as a way to self-evaluate and look inward and see where you're at as far as serving
5: the overall community within the industry. That type of evaluation should be done at every level. Biggest celebrity-driven agencies should be looking at those kind of things. And the smallest solo and duo, roots music, Americana, one-person theatricals, everybody should be looking at it. The tendency is to say, I can't solve this problem. I'm too small. I don't have the money flow. Everybody. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes more hours than you currently have to offer. Something's going to give. You might not be able to go to movie night with your partner on Friday because you're going to use that time to actively scour the internet for an artist that's going to make your roster reflect more of what this world should be. So there's no free lunch. It's not going to happen to you. If I kept doing what I was doing, I'd have, you know, whatever, maybe the same amount of money and the same roster that I had in 2016 it takes effort, it takes work, but everybody at every level, I think, needs to take ownership of the problem. And I will say it's a problem to make the needle truly move.
2: Ron, I'm going to move into a question that is kind of a way that we wrap up a lot of these interviews. We're going to kind of take you back in time to that low point whenever you were in New York and you had set limits upon yourself and you and Melissa started talking about what could be. What advice would you have for yourself at that point in your career?
5: I thankfully don't have any regrets in my personal journey. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't make any different choices. I actually am so proud of the choices we've made with all of our business decisions. And we've, again, always led with heart and passion and kindness and empathy and equity. But what I would do is encourage myself to do all of it at 6 out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10 from an emotional level. My... Tendency when things get stressful is to start attacking things with panic. And they all got done. I'm standing here today. All those things that I panicked about got done because I'm here and I'm breathing and we're talking. So I could have had a freak out and gotten them done, or I could have gone, This really isn't working out the way that I thought. Deep breaths and let's move forward and find solutions. Same result. One way increased my cortisol levels, made me pack on, uh, on abdominal fat and gave me wrinkles on my face. One way would have made me be able to end the day at six going, okay, there's more work to do tomorrow. Let's keep going. And I wouldn't have any negativity surrounding things that are just business problems that need solutions. It's all personal. It was all personal. And it needs to be a little less personal to me. That's the advice I give myself.
1: Chill out. And that's really about knowing you and knowing like yeah. what it is that like
5: you need I've always been a because late bloomer. Because to the now. choir a Yes, yes. I've always been a late bloomer when it comes to, you know, emotions and all that stuff. So I'm learning. I'm
2: learning. There was an interview with the Broadway. I can't remember who it was. I wish I could. But they said, you can't always give 100%. If you're always giving 100% and something happens and you need that extra, hmm. you don't have any extra if you're already all out.
5: Right, right. I think I think you can always give a hundred percent commitment, but you don't need to give a hundred percent of your vocal cords or your hydration or your sanity. Everything deserves your full and complete attention, but yes, you can't. Your your car can't always be on one click above E. It doesn't mean that stopping for gas is ruining your journey. It just means that you're taking care of the car and doing what it needs to continue the journey. I just made that up. <laughs> it's good. I should put that on a pillow. <laughs> I'm all about a good analogy over here.
2: So, one final question. What is your favorite thing about the industry right now at this point in time?
5: I mentioned that I love the fact that we're not afraid to tackle scary issues in this industry. I mean, we bring them up, we talk about them, we solve them. I love that. I love that, and that includes everything, not just inequity in terms of DEI objectives. It also affects, like, what does conferencing look like? There are so many industries that would not even be able to ask that question. Will live showcasing be a factor how will social media continue to play a dramatic effect, a dramatic part of booking shows in the future? All these questions. And as the young generation moves in and starts asking them, I love the fact that we're so resilient flexible and confident that we know that we're going to keep on making art, even if it looks a little different every time we do it. We'll find a way. We found a way during the pandemic. I mean, Shades of Buble did a show on Jones Beach where everybody stayed in their car and they beeped their horns and flashed their headlights instead of applause and tuned into their radio to hear the audio. Who would have even conceived of that before we were forced to do it? I love that about our industry. Found a way for people to listen to music. Um, and that applies to dance and theater and you know multimedia art, all the things. Even murals, Josh Benson.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, so, yeah, I love that. I love that about this crazy, wonderful group of clowns that I call my colleagues. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Danielle, thank you for your great questions and your insight on this as well. I look forward to seeing you again at the conferences and just being able to share a big hug, Ron. I can't wait. Bye. Thank you again.
5: My pleasure.
4: I think the place to start is, Danielle, you were in rare form during this one, and (laughs) I loved it. And then two, let's talk about Ariana Grande. (laughs) Did not expect that.
1: (laughs) Came out of left field. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, also, what I I guess uh, the thing that really, like, shocked me and i had to rewind it a couple times was and at first i must have missed him saying it the first time that that's where he was going to do his doctorate because to me when he said i had to call Rutgers, like it just stuck out i was like wait that that's where you got accepted and you're like i'm gonna go do this art thing uh which i think is is obviously like one really impressive but two like I love that, that he, he followed his heart on that because so many people would say like, this is what I've been working towards in my, in my life for so long. Like this was just a hobby and to have him take that moment and go, no, I can make a go at this and also be happy. That's probably the crossroads I I would have to imagine for him is like, yes, I'll probably be successful over here doing this, but like, what's actually going to fulfill me. And that's what he was, you know, followed that. And I love when people do that and are able to do that
0: even though he didn't follow that path, I'm definitely calling him Dr. Ron from now on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
3: 100%. Kevin, I agree. Uh, Ron's forks in the road as he phrased it you know he had these couple of kind of monumental moments and he did choose to follow his heart and the enthusiasm with which he followed that dream and like moved to New York City and plopped his bags down and just went after the first audition and within three months had a professional gig like that is shocking to me and I would never have the courage to do that And um, but Melissa clearly saw the talent and he had her in his corner, supporting him and encouraging him to do that. So I think that just speaks to something we've heard quite often is like having other people in your corner supporting you um, and encouraging you is a huge part of, you know, our artistic journeys. And he clearly is meant to do this. I could never like that is my worst nightmare is to move to a brand new city with nothing and no one and just put yourself out there like no, 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 no. That I can't do that. Not cool.
4: I completely agree. And like, let's talk about that enthusiasm for a moment because I have actually never met Ron personally, um, but like listening to this interview, I mean, that energy just... Like it it, it comes through and to know that that's not just his persona on stage, that like, that's just who he is. Obviously that energy is what has propelled him as has given him those opportunities. And, you know, I mean, you put somebody like that in a room, it's hard not to be attracted to that.
0: Well, he loves what he does and he, he believes in his artists and he's authentically passionate about that. I also loved his, his story. I thought it was very inspiring and I thought it was really cool. I never knew that, Mojo, who we had interviewed, he was in our episode two, a great episode, go back and listen if you haven't, was kind of a mentor for him in that. And I wish I could have seen that actual showcase in person, but I I could only imagine the learning that happened in that room. And I've seen some of Ron's artists in person in recent times in showcases, but I wish I could have been there for that first one.
3: I also love that moment and part of the conversation about showcasing and his agency taking on that role of producing showcases. And then the realization that like, we're not actually great at this. This isn't... In our wheelhouse, this isn't our strength. We need to redirect our energy elsewhere, and our artists deserve better. Like, I love that self-realization or that um, self-awareness, and the fact that they're just like, "Yep, yeah, nope, this isn't this isn't where we should be spending our time and energy, and we need to do this in a different way to better support our art- artists." I think that humility really comes across in in their conversation, and I thought that was a a really brave thing to talk about because once you go down that path like you want to be successful and you want to stick with it and you want to you know show everyone that you can do this but like I think it says a lot about him and Melissa and the passion and support they have for their artists to go yeah this isn't our wheelhouse we need to change course here a lot of people would not be brave enough to do that
1: so what was compelling to me um, about listening to Ron talk about um, being an artist as well as an agent and the different ways that that's crossed over in his life um, was talking about how he and Melissa constructed a showcase rather than doing like a 15 minute top of show and going through and doing nine little bits so that people could see their range and really what their show was offering since it wasn't a lot of things, right? It wasn't dance, it wasn't music. It's not uh, necessarily like variety in the same way that people were thinking at that time. And so pulling things so that people could see the range and see how something that was new, a new format, but not necessarily a new art form, could fit into their theater. And now that's something that they offer to their artists who are getting ready to showcase and to be able to tell that story.
2: I was lucky enough to see their showcase. I believe it was that first one. The energy and the fire and the fun that they brought to that stage in all those little snippets, you knew exactly what you were getting as far as a stage presence on a show. It didn't matter the size of the room. They filled all of it. Just with personality and performance, and it's it's it was really fun to watch, just because of the energy that was brought forward.
0: I loved his humility and talking about how the first time they did it, it was a little kitschy, especially around the buble showcase, and how that didn't really fit with buble. They realized it, they learned, they grew, and they adapted right away, which um, which was really smart. So I, I just want to give kudos to Ron for uh, acknowledging that.
1: And Josh, you asked us earlier about um, our passions for different things. And I loved how Ron tied talking about his passion for being an agent, to being able to make working opportunities for his friends and that those people are like buying houses. And, you know, so much of that ability to like be able to move up financially is being tied to the work that he's doing. Like it makes it so hard, I think, to step away because you feel so connected to the work that you're doing, and you're able to see that e- economic impact on an individual at such a huge level, and, and an amazing part of their life.
3: I agree, Danielle. I think that's a really important thing for us to continue to think about. And I think recognizing like that pressure um, that agents must feel, right, or or producers must feel to support their artists in that way. I can imagine that it is really difficult for him to step away or delegate because he cares so much and has such personal relationships with the artists he that he has on the roster.
4: The other thing I really appreciate about this conversation with Ron was the DEI conversation It was nice to hear him talk about our industry sort of in a positive light in in that. I think we have a a tendency to focus on sort of like how far we still need to go and hearing somebody frame it in the sense that this industry isn't afraid to tackle the big questions and is like pushing ourselves to have those conversations and, and in those rooms. And while they're not perfect and there's still a long, a long way to go, it was sort of nice hearing, hearing that side of things and acknowledging that like, yeah, we are in an industry that is actually asking these questions and there's a lot of people People that are actually doing something about this or trying to instead of just constantly focusing on the things that the industry is not doing.
3: I also really appreciated Ron's just matter of fact attitude about recognizing the shortcomings in the work that he and Melissa were doing and curating their roster and just committing to making a significant change. In that, um, I think a lot of times organizations dance around this idea of we haven't done well in the past. We've screwed up. We haven't recognized our role in this. And they make kind of broad general statements to that effect. But I really just appreciate the matter of factness of that saying, yeah, we weren't doing a good job, had this recognition and we're going to do better. We're going to make changes. We're going to really commit to this and just move forward. I just really appreciate that move almost from allyship into co-conspiratorship that he and Melissa have. And I think it is something that we just need to be more matter of fact about in our industry and to keep us moving in that in that positive direction, like you were saying, Kevin.
0: I also like that he said it, he doesn't deserve any accolades for that because it was a failure that he's fixing. And sometimes it comes across like when we do have that recognition and we start getting into a proper headspace and doing the right things, we, we start to feel good about ourselves and and it may come across as, oh, look at me. And and that's important that I'm glad Ron mentioned that part of it too.
1: I'm also going to take his advice of only giving maybe six out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10, you know, a hundred percent commitment, but maybe not a hundred percent of your sanity because it gets done whether you panic or not. I feel like that's a hard earned uh, piece of advice.
2: (laughs) And when I referenced the quote that I heard the first time I heard it, I was like, no, that's a bunch of crap. You've got to put everything you have into everything. And then, and then it's just over slow introspection that I'm like, Oh, no, that's why I've been burnt out so many times and that I I really should take that advice.
0: You were talking about Ron's relationship before with his artists, and um, I also liked how he spoke about his relationship with presenters and how he takes the path of longevity instead of just going after the quick buck. And it goes back to things that we've said over and over again and other guests have said over and over how it's a relational approach and how that's going to help us all in the long run. And to quote Ron, that's how he keeps it real. Well, thank you all for your insights on that interview. Thank you, Ron, for
2: sitting down with us. Catch us again next time here on There's No Business Like.
1: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zellmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vano. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at Nobusinesslike.com. there you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials if you like this podcast give us a like a follow a review or our favorite a five star rating oh wait what was that site i got it don't worry it is nobusinesslike.com. do i sound out bus i every time i type it yep sure do
3: stay in touch my friends I know. I texted. I was like, without thinking, "What are the three core things that make you you?" Go. And he texts back, "Taco family and friends." And I was, that like,
4: seems actually pretty honest. I,
2: were those three separate things, or was that taco family and friends?
0: <laughs> tacos, family, oh, and friends, comma friends. friends, family, and then I was like, I go, reverse,
3: but I'm reverse I'm... that order, and I was like, eh, tacos kind of seems like they should come
4: first. Brian, I am interested in your taco friends. Like,
0: <laughs> so, so am I now. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Brian just has some anthropomorphic tacos that follow him around everywhere with little arms. My and
0: dream. Legs. Wait, you guys can see him too?
3: <laughs> the one's right there over your shoulder there, Brian. You're like
0: grill.
5: <laughs> and the tacos are your minions. <laughs> oh,
0: God, that's so funny.